1: is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. War and peace, the future of war in the world. Something called democratic peace theory that you may not have heard of. I think that this is really actually a very big deal. Back in 1795, 1795, America has won the the Revolutionary War. George Washington is president. Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, the German philosopher, writes this piece. It wasn't quite a book. It was like a long pamphlet. It was called... Toward perpetual peace, a philosophical draft. I won't even try the German. And in this he said that we could end war for all time. Now keep in mind this was America, we weren't literally the first democracy ever. You know, you had the Greek democracies and you had the the you know some parts of the Roman Empire were democracies, but we were Arguably, and, and there had been you know, in the Low Countries, and in the Netherlands, and what we now call the Netherlands, and, and some other areas, there had been some countries that had kind of put themselves together in a democratic fashion. But we were the giant experiment for the world. I mean, you know, the, the vast majority of people in the world figured that there's no way, that democracy can work. I mean, you can't trust the people. After all, we've had kings for 2,000 years. We've had popes, you know, running things. Basically, warlords, and all that's very stable. I mean, feudalism was 1,400 years in Europe. So isn't that the way things are supposed to be? Immanuel Kant said no. His point was that if every country in the world became a democracy, where the will of the majority of the people was actually carried out. Now, you could argue, by the way, that America is no longer a democracy because the will of the people is no longer carried out. This was this shocking study from Gillens and Page a while back that found that probability of legislation being passed that the top 1% wants is really, really high. Probability of legislation being passed that the bottom 90% wants is equivalent to random noise. That means that we're post-democracy. We've become an oligarchy or plutocracy. Let's set that aside for a minute. And let's just talk, because I think that it's still, I still hold hope. I mean, I think that the 2020 election next November is going to be when we're going to find out whether democracy is going to survive in the United States and around the world. And if it doesn't, it's going to lead to war. So anyhow, what Kant was saying was that if you've got two countries next door to each other and they're both democracies, even if they've got all kinds of conflicts, as long as one doesn't attack the other well one would never attack the other as long as they're both controlled by their people because i mean you know just very very simply no majority of citizens would ever vote to send their own children off to die unless their country had been attacked so you would have no wars of aggression coming out of democracies and if everybody else was a democracy it literally would end all war for all time Kant proposed this in 1795. Thomas Paine picked this up in 1798. Ben Franklin was writing about this. In the, actually before that, he was, although he didn't have Kant's rant, but you know, Ben Franklin wrote uh, all wars are folly and there never was a good war or a bad peace. I mean, he was very, very, very much opposed to most wars. Although, you know, the American Revolution, of course, was a war. This is why in the constitution, When they drafted the Constitution, the power to declare war is exclusively given to Congress and has to begin in the House of Representatives, which is elected the entire body. All of the House of Representatives is elected. Every single one of them is up for re-election every two years. The idea was this will put an end to war. Woodrow Wilson embraced this so aggressively that he called World War I the war to end all wars, because it was to reestablish democracy in Europe. In 1962, a research scientist from New York called Dean Babst, by the name of Dean Babst, he studied 116 wars that involved 438 countries. And he wrote, and I quote, no wars have been fought between independent nations with elective governments between 1789 and 1941 now he was counting germany as an elective government you could point out though that by 1941 germany was no longer an elective government hitler had banned opposition parties in the free press so i'd say you know to this day david singer and melvin small wrote a book called resort to arms international and civil wars 1816 to 1980 and they define a war as something that produced more than a thousand deaths in battle. Not one was fought between two democracies. Professor Randolph Rommel, using the similar definition of war, a thousand casualties, looked at 353 pairs of nations that had engaged in battle between 1816 and 1991. He found that dictatorships fought each other in 198 of the 353 wars democracies fought against non-democracies in 155 wars, but he was, quote, unable to find evidence of any war between two fully functioning democracies. Jack Levy, the author of a book called Causes of War, said, quote, the absence of war between democracies comes as close to anything as an empirical law in international relations. And then it goes beyond war to famine, amartya sen who is a nobel prize-winning economist in his book development as freedom writes no famine has ever taken place in the history of the world in a functioning democracy which led per almark the former deputy he's now deceased deputy prime minister of sweden addressing the european parliament to say again the crucial factor is freedom where there is an active opposition and a free press governments cannot neglect tens of thousands of people starving to death he said since the last century Citizens of liberal democracies have imagined or felt these connections to be true. Now the peace researchers have confirmed our convictions. So today, my report to the liberal democracies of Europe is that you have been right about freedom the whole time. But what's Trump doing? He's embracing countries that have rejected democracy. Even formerly Democratic, he's embracing the leaders, that you know, Modi in India and Duterte in the Philippines and Orban in Hungary and Erdogan in Turkey. He's rejecting the Kurds in northern Syria that actually established a secular democracy to govern themselves. He's embracing dictator. He's building, you know, for God's sake, this, I mean, this is, As president, I'm quoting here, as President Trump has met with leaders of at least 10 countries where he has a property or is developing one, he has also met with leaders of three countries, Chinese, Saudi Arabia, and South Korea, where state-owned companies are developing Trump resorts, new Trump resorts in China, in South Korea, and in Saudi Arabia. This is not democracy. So is Trump the catalyst for war and authoritarianism around the planet? I would say yes. How do we best respond to this? With democracy, in my opinion, which raises the question, what are the things, what would your priorities be for restoring democracy in the United States? (laughs) Tom Harbin here with you. I spent the weekend uh, researching the stuff that I just shared with you. I wrote it up as an op-ed piece that'll probably be published in the next day or three. And I'm kicking around the idea of even incorporating this stuff, this whole concept into a book about democracy. And I find it absolutely fascinating that democracies don't go to war with each other. Now, this democratic peace theory is actually fairly controversial. It was used, the idea that democracies don't go to war with each other. This actually in 2002, that theory was used by George W. Bush and Dick Cheney to justify the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq saying, if we take over these countries and we turn them into democracies, because democracies don't go to war with each other, we will bring peace to the Middle East. Now, the problem is you can't impose a democracy, right? But that democratic peace theory was actually used to justify two wars, two illegal wars. So there's that. The other argument that's been made against the democratic peace theory Is that the reason democracies don't go to war with each other is not because they're both democracies and therefore, you know, and by the way, they're defining democracies as countries that where the will of the majority of the people is what happens, where you have multiple political parties, including opposition parties, and where you have a free press and so the second argument and it's kind of an argument against democratic peace theory that was adopted by neoliberals including the dlc the whole you know uh, from bill clinton to to george herbert walker bush and and ron reagan ronald reagan they were all saying the same thing is that it's not that democracies don't go to war with each other uh, because people won't vote for war it's the, the reason democracies don't go to war with each other is because they have shared interests they trade with each other And therefore, if you want to have peace in the world, you have to have world trade. And this was the sales pitch that Reagan and Bush the elder and Bill Clinton brought to us. And it was continued by George W. Bush and Barack Obama. In fact, the whole TPP. You don't have to have democracies. If you don't want to have a war with China, just trade with them a lot. And you'll never have a war with them. Now, I think time is telling us that that's a false theory, just like uh, Bush and Cheney's theory that you could, you know, bomb Iraq and Afghanistan into democracy, and therefore they would become peaceful, was a false theory. And what that leaves us with is Immanuel is Kant's original democratic peace theory. But in the, in this context, to the extent that Donald Trump is promoting authoritarianism around the world. He's embracing people who are rejecting democracy or have already rejected democracy, like el-Sisi in Egypt or Erdogan in Turkey or Putin in Russia or in China, Chairman Xi or President Xi, I guess his title is now. That by embracing these people, and and also by the United States no longer operating under democratic principles, that is to say, the will of the majority does not get made into law in the United States. And the Supreme Court just made that situation worse, and I would say that the Supreme Court is the main reason why this is the case, that we have been corrupted by billionaires and big corporations, because the Supreme Court changed the rules of the game. They moved the goalposts. So is Trump the catalyst for war and authoritarianism around the planet to the Tom
3: Hartman program?
1: What do you think about the democratic peace theory? How do we bring this about? Is it too late in the United States? What do you think is going to happen with the 2020 elections? With regard to this, is this last call for peace on earth? Louise and I have been using CBD oil for about a year now, and... I'm telling you, it's great stuff. Uh, New Leaf Natural CBD oil is just spectacular. It's non-intoxicating. Of course, all CBD oil, is, doesn't get you high. Uh, it's made from hemp, not medical marijuana. And so it doesn't get you high, but you do get the health benefits of the cannabinoids because CBD is a cannabinoid without those mind-altering effects. It's non toxic It has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the USA. And the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's nu leaf and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to newleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's leafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com. Welcome back, Tom Harvard here with you. So, the upside the positive news, the really actually exciting, fascinating, boy, we we really need to know this news, is that democracies rarely go to war with each other. Now, there is a, a Wikipedia page specifically called democracies that went to war with each other or something close to that. But, I, you know, I spent a lot of time with it yesterday, and and it seems like most of the things that it was describing were things like, you know, when Yugoslavia started breaking apart and individual what ultimately became republics declared independence and then they, you know there there would be a war which was sort of like the american civil war and i didn't i couldn't find where any two democracies actually voted essentially to have a non-defensive war with each other or a non-defensive it be the aggressor functioning democracies so the good news is that Kant may well be right Now, keep in mind, you know, right up until the 1870s, there were not more than six or eight democracies in the world. By 1980, half the people who lived on this planet lived in a democracy. It was fully 30% of all countries. It's now over 40% of countries, although it has declined by 3% in the last 10 years, the number of democracies. And the number of non-democracies has gone up by about 4.5% in the last decade and why is that this was the the first reversal by the way in like 60 years why is that i think it's because this doctrine that money is speech this and this is the bad news this doctrine that money is speech is free speech and therefore billionaires should be able to control politicians own politicians and own media and you know the the whole the whole neoliberal thing of deregulate and you know if thatcherism reaganism has actually spread across the world and as countries adopt these policies they become progressively less small d democratic as in the will of the people being acted out in the legislative square today you could argue that in the united states we are very undemocratic or we are less than fully radically less than fully democratic because so rarely is the will of the people carried out. Now, you know, it's possible that that could change in, in November of next year. If the Democrats overwhelmingly take the House, the Senate, and the White House, and if we elect a progressive, or actually, I, frankly, I, I'm increasingly thinking, you know, I mentioned earlier, Pete Buttigieg is being criticized for hiring people at the recommendation of the CEO of Facebook for his campaign. But on the other hand, he has come right out and said if he gets elected, you know, one of the big things he's going to champion is ending Citizens United. I, you know, I don't know how committed he is to that, but I, you know, I'm, I, my sense of it is that all of the Democratic candidates, any of the Democratic candidates they're all realizing, they're looking at the Supreme Court, they're looking at the situation, they're looking at the big money, they're looking at what the Cokes are doing, they're looking at Amazon taking down, you know, trying to take down a a city council member in Seattle, for God's sake. They're looking at this stuff and going, you know, this can't stand. But I think this may be our last chance. And if the United States doesn't return to small d democratic principles, to the idea of actually doing what the people want. The people want Social Security strengthened. We've seen every Republican administration since Reagan weaken Social Security. The people want Medicare expanded. We've seen every Republican administration since Reagan take a bite out of Medicare. The people want clean air and clean water. We've seen every Republican administration since Reagan passing legislation allowing more pollution. Now, the Democratic Party has been on the opposite side of every single one of those battles. But because the Supreme Court welcomed big money into the political sphere in the United States, the Republican Party has gained so much power in the individual states. This has been built from the grassroots up through ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, through the, the, the Something States Network, through all these front groups that the Kochs are funding and the Bradley Foundation and and the Mercers and these other right-wing, Shelley Adels, all these right-wing billionaires, that our democracy is hanging by a thread. And if our democracy goes, if we go the way of Turkey or the way of Hungary, actually, I think it's probably more likely, where Viktor Orban finally succeeded, he got enough of a constitutional majority or a parliamentary majority, that he was actually able to rewrite the Constitution of Hungary to do away with the protections of the free press. And then he had his buddies buy up all the media outlets in the country. And so all the major media outlets in Hungary are basically Orban TV, Orban newspaper, Orban radio. And the oligarchs in the United States have got us halfway there. We've got a television network owned by a billionaire, rupert murdoch you've got another television network NBC, owned by comcast uh, you know right wing you know, which is owned by a right-wing family you've got in large part i mean all of this stuff kind of is coming together it's like w- the perfect storm is here and we are just this far away from from stopping it is it last call for democracy and if so is that the last call for world peace I mean, if we don't succeed in bringing democracy back to the United States and then start working aggressively with these countries, these other countries that have repudiated democracy, to return democracy to them. They have democratic traditions, and they have in their recent past, including, by the way, the the majority of the European countries that, again, are moving away from democracy. They're all adopting Reaganism. I mean, even the European Union, you know, austerity and all this kind of stuff. If we don't return to democracy... In my opinion, World War III is inevitable, and it could be one that ends civilization. Now, from the point of view of the planet, that may be a good thing. You know, literally bomb us all back to the Stone Age, put an end to the Industrial Revolution. But I think a much better way to do it it would be to have a whole bunch of democratic countries working together to tax carbon and make the transition to renewable power. But I suspect that these are the choices that we're facing right now. Tom in Minneapolis. Hey, Tom, what's up? Hey, Tom, can
4: you hear me? Yeah. What's going on is that the cons have intentionally confused where freedom comes from. They've convinced their followers that, the, that freedom comes from markets. If you look at Milton Friedman's book, Capitalism and Freedom, and right. Kevin Phillips' book on wealth and democracy, he goes into this. Libs know that freedom comes from democracy, but they've done this intentionally, they don't like that economic capitalism is supposed to be subservient to political democracy. They want it the other way around, upside down, right? Well, and
1: they've accomplished that to a large extent, Tom, with the help of the Supreme Court.
4: Yes. So on your next book, when you write about democracy, you have to make reference to FDR's 36th speech on economic royalists. He gets into this. when he oh, yeah. We talked about the, which oh, yeah. one is subservient to which, right? Yep. And, and then uh, Kevin Phillips' book on wealth and democracy talks about the, the tension between the two. And then also Milton Friedman's book, which started this whole thing about confusing freedom coming from market. Right. Yeah, and it's just, that's what's going on. The, the, the Republicans believe that, my freedom is, is market. Well, we and, this, it's the most- and, and, and this, by the way,
1: this is the sales pitch that is happening right now. Charles Koch, the headline, this is Ali Koch over at uh, Truthout. The headline is Charles Koch is funding a campaign to kill food stamps and Medicaid. This uh, new group called the Foundation for Government Accountability, the FGA. Their sales pitch, they wind and dine Republicans at the White House and staffers at a Walt Disney Resort. Their pitch, make it harder for poor Americans to gain access to government programs, you know, like food stamps and Medicaid. They have had victories to this effect in Kansas, Kentucky, Mississippi, and West Virginia. They're rolling out a nationwide version of this through the Trump administration this month. To kick hundreds of thousands of people off food stamps, and it turns out it's heavily funded by Charles Koch and by the Bradley brothers and and other you know right wing nonprofits, and they are quote recasting cuts to public welfare benefits as encouraging the redeeming power of work.
4: Exactly. See, they use the word government as if it's some outside force. Uh, oppressing you. And that would be true if we were not a democracy, but in a democracy, we are the government. Right. And
1: they are asserting that work is what gives life meaning, and work comes out of the marketplace, and government has no business in there. And the extent to which government provides a safety net, that discourages people from working. And that that whole theory that if people have all their needs met, they'll never work, the lie to that is Charles Koch himself. I mean, he's had all he needs his whole entire life, and he shows up for work every day.
4: But the word government, we should always say our government, not just simply government, because that sounds like it's some outside evil force. No, it's our government. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well said, Tom. Well said. (laughs) Tom, thank you very much for the call. Thanks for listening to M950 in Minneapolis.
3: John in Minneapolis. Hey, John, your thoughts? Yeah, um, I just wanted to say that, unfortunately, so many people are brainwashed uh, by Fox News and other, you know, conservative outlets over decades, that they seem to think that markets and economy is democracy. And I'm sure this is what Mitch McConnell thinks, so that anything that even remotely affects the concentration of wealth at the top is going to destroy what their conception of democracy is. But the fact of the matter is, and they've been saying it, you know, kind of in so many different ways, and some people even directly, that they don't like democracy. Democracy just doesn't comport with how they see the world. Aaron Brook used to come on this program, you know, from, from the
1: uh, Objectivist Society, I think, was, you know, the mm-hmm. Ayn Rand guy. And he used to just rail against democracy. Yeah, we don't believe in democracy. That's mob rule. That's not a good thing. You know, Stephen Moore was on this program about 10 years ago, and you know, this is before Trump tried to put him on the Fed. And I said, just right up, you know, I said, which is more important, democracy or capitalism? And he said, capitalism. Uh, he had yeah. this convoluted rationalization that democracy can't work without a capitalist system. You know, I don't think that's true. And on the other hand, I think we can see that a communist government works just fine with capitalism. Look at China.
3: This is gross materialism that they don't seem to get, that human needs are far greater than what is uh, provided by the marketplace. Education, health care, fairness in laws, and a framework which would protect people from the extreme of abuse of power, which we are chipping away at. And unfortunately, the the other party jumped onto it. Everybody thought, wow, this is... uh, you know, going to, you know, make us all rich. And instead, it's impoverished a lot of people. And yes, you can point to, well, you know, the standard of living has come up. But the fact of the matter is, people do not have the freedom that they should have in a democracy. And I think we should fight for democracy. I I think it would be absolutely awful if this is the last stage of history, as somebody said. Yeah,
1: I think, frankly, we are at that. Threshold. We are at that edge right now. John, thank you for the call.
3: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
1: As a believer in natural medicine, I'm one to shy away from surgery, especially cosmetic procedures, but let's face it, I'm human and wanna look good. Decades of hard work have left its mark and I found a product that not only works, but also meets my non-invasive criteria. I'm talking about Plexiderm. It's derived from shale rock and visibly reduces under eye bags, wrinkles, and crow's feet in minutes. There's no knives, no needles, only naturally derived ingredients. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I tried it. Within minutes, I was looking like my old self again. The best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will know you're using it, unless you tell them. And the effects last for hours. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M, for 50% off, plus an additional $10 off. That's right, $50 off, plus an extra $10 off. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Don't be a victim of your skin any longer. Visit TryPlexiderm.com and use the code TOM at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com or call 800-685-1292. Try code TOM at checkout, or call 800-685-1292. Just a recap, if you're just tuning in, I was laying out this thing called Democratic Peace Theory, which Immanuel Kant came up with in 1795, It was endorsed by Adam Smith, the author of Wealth of Nations, it was endorsed by Thomas Paine, It was embraced by the early French Revolution. The idea that if every country in the world became a democracy, there would be no more war. It would end war for all time. Woodrow Wilson embraced this theory. It's why he called World War I the war to end all wars. And argued for the League of Nations. And the theory is that democracies will never go to war. And you defining a democracy as a free press, multiple political parties, including opposition parties, and most importantly, that the will of the people actually gets accomplished. Now, by that definition, you could say America is no longer a democracy. Because since, by and large, the Reagan revolution, particularly with Republican administrations, what we get are laws that are not supported by the vast majority of the people and policies that are not supported by the vast majority of the people. So you could argue, at least during Republican administrations, that we are not democratic, small d democratic. I mean, the majority of the people did not want NAFTA, but Bill Clinton got it to us. The majority of the people didn't want You know, the ownership rules of television and radio to be changed, but, you know, we got the Telecommunications Act in 96. The majority of the people didn't want bankruptcy laws to be changed so that student loans couldn't be discharged in bankruptcy. Well, actually, that was during the George W. Bush administration. But my point is that when the majority of the people can decide what the country does, people will never vote to send their own children off to a war that's not defensive, that is not a response to an attack. You know, you get a Pearl Harbor, you get a 9-11, yeah, there's going to be a response and it may be a war. And I think with Pearl Harbor, that's pretty hard to dispute. With 9-11, it's a whole different thing because it wasn't a state that attacked us, unless it was Saudi Arabia by proxy. It was a religious group that grew out of Saudi Wahhabism. But in any case, I think that's a debatable tangent. The point is that when you have healthy democracies, you don't have war. And what Trump is doing is embracing countries that are not democracies, or are only titular democracies, like Russia or China, which actually calls themselves communist, and doesn't have opposition parties, doesn't have a free press, and doesn't have popular elections. So it's clearly not a democracy. But Trump is embracing, and Saudi Arabia, a brutal dictatorship. Trump is embracing these countries And he's embracing leaders of what were democratic countries, but the leaders have renounced democracy. Modi in India, Duterte in the Philippines, Erdogan in Turkey, El-Sisi in Egypt. I mean, the list goes on. And by doing this, he's damaging democracy all around the world and thus radically increasing the probability of war. And my point was that the 2020 election coming up in November of this year, or next year, rather, 13 months from now, if this neoconservative, neoliberal ideology that has been embraced by the Republican Party since 1980 was embraced by the Supreme Court in 1976 and inflicted on America, and we saw another example of that where the Supreme Court said, oh, you know, the Republicans gerrymandered Michigan, that's just fine. The reason for this, of course, the reason that the Republicans got away with it is because before that, the Supreme Court said, oh, billionaires want to own politics. That's, uh, politicians. That's just fine. That was 76, that led us, got us Reagan. So what we're watching is the destruction of democracy all around the world. And at the same time, along with it, we're seeing the risk of war going up. And I have a real concern that World War III is not gonna be pretty. Every time we have a major war, the weapons that were just introduced in the previous war are used, whether it's aircraft or whether it's new kinds of bombing or whether it's, you know, a napalm, whatever it may be. Now, it's nukes. And a World War Three, I'm quite sure it would be a nuclear war and it could be a civilization killer. Literally the end of human civilization. You know, there are people who would argue that's a good thing for the planet. I'm not so sure. But there is a group who actually thinks it would be a wonderful thing to have a civilization-ending war, a planet-ending war. And that group calls themselves evangelicals or you know, evangelical Christians. This last-day doom cult that has consumed Christianity and melded itself at the hip to the Republican Party. This is, you know, how else can you say it other than to say, you know, clearly not a healthy thing. Now, interestingly, the Pew Research Center just came out with this report, and it's over at their website, pewforum.org. And the headline, in the United States, the decline of Christianity continues at a rapid pace. They note that 43% of American adults call themselves Protestant Christians, down from 51% in 2009. All subsets of religiously unaffiliated people have seen their numbers increase. 17% of Americans now describe their religion as, quote, nothing in particular, up from 12% in 2009. And this is if you aggregate all of it among Christians. In 2009, 78% of Americans identified themselves as Christians. Today, it's 65% as religiously affiliated Christians. And the percentage of people who identify themselves as religiously unaffiliated Christians from 2009 to today has gone from 16% up to 26%. And both Protestants and Catholics are shrinking as a percentage of our population. Now, that's just looking at Christianity. But it raises a really interesting question. Why? I've said on this program, I've been saying this for 16 years, that I consider myself a Christian in that, you know, A, I was raised in Christianity. And so... You know, it's kind of baked into me. And I love the words of Jesus. I think, you know, he was a great philosopher. This whole idea of, you know, original sin and the need for salvation and Jesus died for your sin. You know, I, I have a problem with all that. But I don't think that makes me not a Christian. But I can tell you that there's a lot of Christian churches that would say, no, you know, you're not welcome here. Not with that perspective. So I'm one of those unaffiliated Christians who believes in the teachings and the ethos of the religion, but not in all of the doctrine and not in some of the the more far out stuff like, oh, you know, we've got to have this war to end all wars, you know, where the second temple gets erected or the Al-Aqsa mosque gets taken over by Christians or Jews. And then Then there's a giant war in Israel, and only 144,000 Jews are left, and they all convert to Christianity to avoid being destroyed, and then Jesus returns to the earth. So why is Christianity in decline in the United States? I think this is a really important and meaningful question. I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that big money has corrupted Christianity the same way it's corrupted the Republican Party. And to some extent, to a large extent, the Democratic Party as well. You've got evangelical mega church pastors and televangelists who are becoming, they become the new Borgias, you know, the Italian family that had three popes, kind of took over the Catholic Church for a while and lived in bizarre excess. And this is the evangelical megachurch pastors and the televangelists. They're living lives of luxury. They're building massive personal fortunes. They've got private jets. They've got estates. And they're telling their followers that God loves uh, this particular corrupt politician and that particular corrupt politician. You know, I'd say the Catholic Church never excised their own internal rot and corruption, which goes back to the Borgias. And they're paying a price for it right now. And Protestant Christianity is at a crossroads. Is Protestant Christianity going to return to their core, their generally apolitical middle-class values, the Methodist church that I was raised in where politics was literally never mentioned? Or will the most visible leaders among the Protestant religions continue to embrace the Republican Party and its billionaire mega donors? and thus continue to destroy Christianity. And then you look at the numbers. 94% of Republicans overall oppose impeaching Donald Trump and removing him from office, okay? 94%. But among evangelicals, 99% oppose impeaching Donald Trump. The guy who grabs women, the guy who, who assaults women, the guy who has had two divorces, and is on his third wife who got into the United States now, you know, on an Einstein visa and who brought her parents over uh, with chain migration and all the, I mean, it's like you know, that Trump is campaigning against. I mean, you know, Stephen Miller's head has to be exploding, right? Gary in Baden, Pennsylvania. Hey, Gary, what's up?
0: I just don't see how, when you look at what Jesus speaks of, you know, loving your neighbor, doing all those things, right. that someone on the radical right can come up with an idea. It's just so changing, and it's, you know, it's a complete opposite of how I think how we should treat our fellow persons. Oh, it,
1: it absolutely is. I mean, you know, I, I think the, the, the two most articulate or the the two places in the New Testament where the essence of Christianity, and frankly, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Mm -hmm. you know, all of them collectively, is most clearly articulated are the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, what, 5 through 8, and in Matthew 25. And in both cases, if you look at the Republican Party, or for that matter, if you look at Donald Trump's rally, you see a complete repudiation of those christian values or of those religious values more generally or frankly even just those moral values because there are people who are atheists like my dad was who are just as moral as any christian in fact i think many of them are far less you know hypocritical so uh yeah Uh, yeah. i'm with you and i and i don't know how these people can continue to call themselves christians and get away with it but they do somehow so amazing stuff isn't it just amazing But has capitalism and the Republican Party destroyed religion? I guess that's ultimately the question. Can peace recover from capitalism and the Republican Party? Can democracy recover from the Supreme Court inflicting all this damage on it over the years and the Republican Party? And now can religion recover from this? I'm doubtful. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It would be fascinating to know what's happening with some of the more progressive of the Protestant denominations. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So where is this all heading? It looks to me like what we're seeing is around the world is the death of democracy. And parallel with that, you could say, it looks like we're seeing the death of that part of religion that is compassionate, that is understanding, that is nurturing, that is deeply spiritual, and those kinds of religions and those dimensions of religion are being replaced You see this in the Middle East with the rise of ISIS and fundamentalist Islam that has metastasized out of the cancer in Saudi Arabia of Wahhabism. You're seeing this in the United States in the cancer of televangelists and megachurch pastors metastasizing out out of a business model, basically, that was provided by television and radio back 30, 40 years ago of brokered time and has become basically a a major big business i mean i remember in 1980 i went to the national religious broadcasters association nrba yeah in washington dc to their annual convention i talked about this a couple weeks ago on the air about robert schiller giving the keynote address and just horrifying people because he called them out he said you are sheep you are ravening wolves among the sheep i mean it was just like he just horrified people but but it was a trade show there were booths, they were selling, you know, it's, it, it's a multi-billion dollar year industry. And it has its lords and ladies, and it's no longer Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, but now it's Jerry Falwell Jr. and Franklin Graham and, and you know, a whole bunch of uh, megachurch pastors who are, you know, whose names are not common among people who just, you know, who are not Fundamentalist, but the kind of Christianity that they're embracing is the kick the poor to the curb Christianity. It's the so called prosperity gospel. It's neo Calvinism. It's a reinvention. You know, John Calvin was like, well, you know, we're all sinners because we were all born by women, and women, that's the original sinner, right? Was Eve. And therefore, since we're all sinners, how do we figure out who's going to run the show? Well, God has already told us who he wants to run the show. They're the people he made rich. So they should be running the show. And thus we end up with Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump tweeting out a picture of their son for Halloween dressed as a stormtrooper, saying, The force is strong in my family. No, the stormtroopers were the bad guys, Ivanka, please. This is pseudo religion. We're listening to the Tom Hartman program. And I think it speaks to the issue, actually. You know, until last year, I'd never endorsed a weight loss product, but I decided to change that after reading about university research into a molecule in olive oil that actually regulates appetite. Louise convinced me there was a product worth sharing, and a year later, I'd have to say she's right. The key to losing weight, of course, is getting your appetite and those pesky food cravings under control. Once you do that, the rest is easy. My producer, Sean, is now trying Ridgizone, too. I mean, who doesn't want to lose a few pounds before the holidays? Sean says Ridgizone is making it easy for her to stick with her weight loss plan. Just one capsule with breakfast and forget it. Second one with dinner for days when you need a little extra help. Sean says when you don't feel hungry, it's easier to make better choices. The only ingredient in Riduzone occurs naturally in the body and is completely non-stimulant. And that really appealed to both Louise and Sean. Listen, if you're looking to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Riduzone a try. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M. And receive up to sixty-five percent off, plus free shipping. Go to riduzone.com. It's r-i-d-u-z-o-n-e.com, r-i-d-u-zone.com, riduzone.com. Promo code Tom, T-H-O-M, riduzone.com. A.B. in Lake Forest, Illinois. Hey, A.B. What's up? Two major things in regards to religion.
2: I think essentially Facebook is kind of taking that down, and the past surveys, I think people felt embarrassed if they didn't have a religion, so they Wait a minute, answered, hey, hey, just sorry.
1: you said Facebook is taking that down. What does that mean?
2: Well, there's so much more interesting stuff to do for young people than go to church.
1: Oh, I see. Okay. You don't think that was um, always the case?
2: Not really, not until everybody got very self-involved with their small groups and, you know, this other stuff except the Cardassians and so forth. Okay. In regards to war, we will always have war as long as we have population growth and expansion and wants
1: and expectations in a finite world. I agree, and you know how the Iroquois ended war? How? Two steps. Number one, their population was stable. Jefferson wrote about this. He was amazed. It was considered a shameful thing for a woman to have a child more than once every seven years um, in Iroquois society. And the reason why was because women had power in their culture. And in fact, women were the only ones who were allowed to vote in four out of the five Iroquois nations. So the consequence of that was that population stabilized. Whenever women have power equal to or in some cases even greater than men, population stabilizes. And once population stabilized, then the question was how do we resolve disputes between the nations? I mean serious disputes like, you know, territory disputes and things. They invented the game lacrosse for that. And there's a, oh, okay. pa- there's a there's a painting hanging in the National Museum in one of the Smithsonian galleries of about 20,000 iroquois dressed up in full war regalia playing lacrosse It was a four-day lacrosse match you know and this was witnessed by the american painter in the uh, late 1700s or early 1700s in order to resolve a dispute between two nations and they literally did not have genocidal wars in fact outside of when the denny people were pushed because of climate during the little ice age that a whole bunch of people basically fled north central canada what we now call Canada. This was before we came along, before Europeans came along. They fled this area up there because it became uninhabitable because it was so cold for about three years in a row and came down into central United States. And we call those people now the Sioux and the Comanches, I believe it was. And they invaded the space that was then occupied by the Hopi and the Pueblo people that are associated with the Hopi. And that produced an actual war, you know, where there was actual, you know, people killing each other. But outside oh, okay. of that, the history of actual genocidal wars where one people tried to kill another people or even exterminate another people, now it's pretty much a European invention. And yeah. I think that that has to do with the fact that in most of these Aboriginal and Indigenous societies, women had power. And, of that's, course, in Europe... I would agree. Yeah, I and, agree with and, that. I think women would have a moderating effect on
2: everything in the planet, and the more they can get back into power. Well, just like Christians, we used to, well, Christians used to worship Mary, and then it switched over to it switched in the
1: 1500s. There's a book called "The Alphabet Versus the Goddess" by Leonard Schlein, and uh, Leonard Schlein has passed away now. He was a brain surgeon. I knew Leonard Schlein. In fact, we had some just fascinating conversations. And in his book, "The Alphabet Versus the Goddess," which is probably still in print, I'm sure you can easily find copies. He lays out this hypothesis that when we started teaching people abstract alphabets, in other words, we started teaching people how to read before the age of seven, which is a major developmental milestone. What happened was it led to an exaggeration of the left hemisphere of the brain, which is where we process linear, non-emotional, abstract stuff like alphabets and diminishing the right hemisphere of the brain which controls the left side of the body which is where we process emotions and you know this is hyper simplified right but you, but in you any mean case the
2: opposite you mean the the left lobe is the right side and the right lobe is the yeah that's what i'm saying left side. that's correct oh
1: good yeah but the point is that when young people started learning alphabet at an early age that that flipped society from being egalitarian and even matriarchal to being hierarchical and patriarchal and he goes back to the 1500s and he says this all started with gutenberg prior to gutenberg for a thousand years prior to the invention of the printing press the only people who were legally allowed to learn how to read were priests and everybody else was forbidden to know how to read and the vast majority of all the churches in europe were dedicated to mary and there were mary shrine and there were mary cults and mary was everywhere and jesus was pretty much an afterthought in christianity in europe right up until the 1500s and then gutenberg came along with the printing press and it kind of broke up the monopoly that the catholic church had on literacy and you know combined with the renaissance you know just in the previous century and this led to widespread literacy and within two generations of widespread literacy you had the burning of witches in other words, you know, men just took revenge on women. You had the burning of witches. You had the entire medical profession, which had been women, taken over by men, including childbirth. It used to be the women who were the herbalists, and and this is where the whole witch thing came from. As a negative thing, it was when the men took over. It's a powerful and compelling hypothesis. Anyhow, Ab, I got I got to move along, but thank you for the call. It's good to hear from you, Steve in Blacksburg, Virginia. Hey, Steve, what's up?
3: Oh, yes, Tom. Thank you very much for taking my call. I mean, I agree with you so much, almost 100% of the time. But I wanted to explain that I was raised in a very conservative Baptist home. Mm -hmm. I, I do not understand... All these people nowadays that claim to be Christians that are following Donald Trump just lockstep.
1: And the Republican Party. I mean, this whole idea that Charles Koch is out there pitching right now, that, you know, we need to do away with food stamps and all, basically all subsidies. We need to do away with Medicaid, because if poor people are in distress, they'll be more inclined to work, and work is the thing that saves us all. It's like, you know, wait a minute, I thought Jesus... But
3: what happened to taking care of the poor?
1: Exactly this is a rejection of christian values it's a rejection of religious values and frankly i think it's a rejection of human values steve amen um with you thank you very much martin in atlanta georgia hey martin what's on your mind
0: hey tom how are you doing today i am a retired pastor i've been out of the church almost 20 years now as far as an organized religion do you mind One my asking what talk- church it was an independent apostolic pentecostal church so we're talking really over to the right but even as right as we were everybody was welcome there was no class distinction there was no race distinction we actually fed the poor those are ideals but even that organization itself started to crumble in the 80s about the time falwell started and corporations figured out that we could influence voters based on religion
1: yeah in the late 60s for about six months I don't think I became a member, but I was regularly attending the North Lansing Church of God. I mean, you know, which is one of the most fundamentalist Christian evangelical denominations or Pentecostal denominations. And that was my sense, too. And they were doing a lot of outreach to the poor and those kind of things. And that entire denomination now has been taken over by basically people who are, you know, praising
0: mammon, in my opinion. Back to you, Martin. Well, you know, the the thing that we used to do, I mean, we taught against succumbing so to the temptations of worldly things, like the having to have a new car, having to have the newest phone, right. having to have material possessions over the needs of our fellow human beings. Yep. And that's why this particular religion, which was growing in the 70s, we saw a lot of growth. We called it latter rain. We had a lot of growth, and the evangelical movement at that time yep. was a movement towards humanity, and corporate America could not have that. Because all of a sudden we didn't value the new shiny things that were being waved in our face and we, we valued the fact that our neighbors were safe, that our neighbors were healthy, that we took care of one another, we loved each other as God loves us. Right. And that was sold by the wayside. And over the past few years, it's been so co-opted now, but we've seen this before. Tyrants and rulers have used the churches who support their craziness, wars and all of their greed and their excessious, lavish lifestyles, which is why we saw the Soviet Union totally revolt against religion during the Russian Revolution, you know, and then we see that Orthodox Church taking over, and of course it is the pet of the oligarchs like Putin, and we see what it's doing to Russia and what's doing around the world, and the American Evangelical Church is no different. Yeah. It is now a corporate church that only cares about money and power, and God's teachings be damned. The Bible talked about the spirit of Antichrist taking over the land. This evangelical movement is the spirit of Antichrist, because anybody that follows it or believes in it is following anti-Christian values.
1: I completely agree with you. And then we get this weird stuff. You've got, you know, Charles Koch and his buddies putting together this foundation for government accountability. And their sales pitch is that we need to destroy the social safety net. We need to end specifically food stamps and Medicaid. And the reason why is because work is redeeming. They're they're talking about and I quote, the redeeming power of work. In other words, work gives our lives meaning, work gives us income. And and I you know I think most people kind of appreciate the power of work, but redeeming? But anyhow, what they're saying that if people aren't made incredibly uncomfortable, they won't work.
0: And, and that's why we have that's why we have the class warfare i know know, but it's like you know isn't
1: isn't charles Koch the poster boy for the opposite of that i mean he's been uh, comfortable his entire life and yet he works his butt off i don't think that work and discomfort have any relationship to each other frankly
0: well the thing is tom that people are being sold the reason you are not wealthy is because the poor people are a drain on society not because the oligarchs are controlling 40 percent of the wealth It's because somebody who who breaks a leg and loses their job gets hungry and we may have to feed them. And as Christians, we are to feed them.
4: Yeah,
1: yeah, there you go. Well said, Martin. Thank you very much for the call. And thanks for watching Free Speech TV down there in Atlanta, Georgia. Good to hear from you. And uh, always great to hear from a retired pastor. Is religion doomed? Is peace doomed? Or is it possible for a renewal of both? Of democracy in America and of, 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 of Christianity. we are listening to Tom Hartman.
3: Visit tomhartman.com for audio and video archive.
1: And I realize there's similar debates going on, you know, in Islam and in Judaism and in other religions as well. Larry in Santa Monica. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind today?
5: I'm a former pastor for almost 20 years. I've been out of the ministry now for about six or seven years. But to truly understand this movement in this country, you have to go back a few years. You probably remember a man by the name of Oral Roberts who was on the TV in the I remember 1960s. him well, yeah. He was a faith healer. So this whole, what they call now, prosperity message actually started in this subgroup of Protestants called Pentecostals, beginning with Oral Roberts, who taught that God could miraculously heal you. And quite frankly, a lot of people did receive some sort of physical relief and they attribute it to Oral Roberts' ministry. Well, his protege was Kenneth Hagan. Mm-hmm. And Kenneth Hagin not only said that God could miraculously heal you, but God could also give you miracle money. Right. So Kenneth Hagin became, uh, became popular in the 1970s. In the 1970s, he met a man named Dr. K.C. Price, who was a black Protestant minister in Los Angeles, and Dr. Price, Fred Price, studied underneath Dr. Hagen, and together they actually propagated, basically around the country, this so-called what we call now the prosperity message. Back in those days, it was actually called the faith gospel. Hmm. And there was a huge, there was a huge split in the Protestant Church. Um, about this faith Gospel but again, because it had its roots in the Pentecostal Church. So you had mainline organizations like what you grew up in, the Methodists. You had Presbyterians and other mainline groups who stood staunchly opposed to this so-called new doctrine. But then you had other groups who were sort who considered themselves a little bit more independent and not doctrinally, uh, not uh, denominationally aligned, who fell into line with it. So you have all of these competing ideas and doctrines. Fast forward to George Bush and his election, who down in Texas becomes converted in a Methodist church whose actual pastor during that time had started sort of being lulled over into the the prosperity message. And so George Bush, in, in many ways, coalesced these sort of strands of evangelical Christianity bringing together those really fundamentalist strands which had their doctrinal beliefs about the end times and they're very conservative in their viewpoints, and then bringing in these pentecostal beliefs speaking about prosperity and and commerce and and, and you know in 1980 and
1: 84 george w bush was the principal advisor to the reagan campaigns on bringing
5: christians into the into the gop exactly right because and his his brand of christianity was not the brand of christianity of his father his father's brand of christianity was episcopalian right george bush's brand of christianity were this sort of neo-protestant faith right. gospel sort of prosperity so
1: where do you think christianity protestant christianity anyway is at right now i mean is this is this a prosperity gospel? It seems to me like it's just turned into a scam, basically, and and they're milking people. I remember when Oral Roberts said, you know, God's going to take me up if you don't help me raise $50 million or whatever it was. On the other hand, Louise and I went to see Catherine Coleman once, and the and woman uh, who we had stood outside for four hours waiting to get into the church with, who was deaf, was healed right in front of me. I mean, it, just, it was shocking. Um, she started yeah. screaming. All of a sudden, she could hear. Her. It yeah. might have been a psychological disorder. Who knows? Um, you know, it might have been a genuine yeah. miracle, but... Where do you think that this is going now?
5: I think what you observed probably was a genuine miracle. As a Christian and a believer that things supernaturally can happen. Uh, but with that said, this infusion of this uh, everybody-can-get-rich gospel has been right. a pollutant. And I think, I think that where we're at right now is a breaking point, because what they've sold to Christianity, the, the prosperity strand of evangelicals, actually has fallen apart several times and it's not really working for them so what you have now is a pushback of just a hardcore doctrinalist of them let's wait for jesus to come back and destroy the earth and will start all over again. and then they get people
1: behind people like donald trump who are essentially warmongers thinking that well he's you know that war on israel is going to be a good thing Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah that, uh, Which leads us right to uh, disaster. Larry, thank you for the call. Great to hear from you. Dave in Buffalo, New York. Hey, Dave, what's up?
4: Uh, Thanks, Tom. Quickly, there's so much about religion.
2: The beginning of religion and uh, why it's so difficult to leave. We were once pagans, and before there was God or Jesus, there was just us pagans. We were hunters and gatherers, you're right. And what happened was a group of people wanted to control people in general. They had an idea about religion. And so what they saw was that these hunters and gatherers during the winter solstice were always celebrating. And what they did was they didn't have a date for Jesus' birthday. So what they decided to do...
1: But I know your story, Dave. They took the solstice and the priest went up and lit the tree on fire and said, I'm going to bring the sun back. And the next day, the days got longer. And everybody said, he did it again. And all, all they had was a little stone calendar to figure out what day to do it. But that's all they needed. I'm with you. I'm with you. Thank you so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It's not something that falls out of the sky. It's not something that we just sit around and watch. No, it requires all of us to participate. So please, tell your friends about our program. Share the word and get active. Get out there, get active, tag. your. are You've it. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Hey, I want to tell you about a great podcast, The Election Ride Home. Someone is going to challenge Donald Trump for the White House. The Election Ride Home is a podcast dedicated to figuring out who that someone, or maybe even multiple someones, will end up being. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and this American Life contributor, Chris Higgins, catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction? What do the polls say? It's a 15 to 20 minute show that keeps track of all the latest news and summarizes it so you don't have to be nervously refreshing your web browser 12 times a day. It's like TLDR as a service. So if you want to catch up on what you missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast.